This is Think Health. I'm Jake Morecambe. The show today starts with Peter. Hi, I'm Dr. Peter Walker. I'm a general practitioner. Peter has been a GP for more than 20 years. I originally was in Melbourne. I've also worked in outer metro Blue Mountains in Sydney. And more recently, my GP focus has been aged care nursing home work in Lower North Shore. Over the past 20 years, the general practice has undergone some massive changes. I think my career has pretty much sort of coincided with the whole introduction of electronic tools into medical practice and general practice in this country has certainly been the testing ground and uh, the proving ground of a lot of technology and particularly the computerization in general practice. The internet has become a thing and, and email and, and other forms of communication, social media. But with these new technologies rolling in... All of this brings about the need to you know, appraise what are you doing to protect the privacy of your patients in this new environment. Privacy in healthcare is not a new concept. As doctors, we've always had the notion that you have to protect your patient's privacy. So it's not like this is some some new thing, but the context is now very different. 20 years ago, it was still common that during a consultation, the GP would physically write down your symptoms, store them in a paper file, and share that file with the front desk to hand out a referral or a prescription. The same process as today, but now... Everything is digital. Logging your information into a computer, emailing that info around the practice, keeping a back catalogue of your prescriptions, visits, all stored in the network. But as the general practice has turned digital, have we lost the right to privacy? The number of data breaches across the health landscape is on the perpetual increase where many have a particularly damaging effect. In the past fortnight, Singapore experienced its worst data breach in history, where the personal health data from more than 1.5 million patients was hacked, including that of Prime Minister Lung. In April here in Australia, Sexual Health Services Body Family Planning was the target of a cyber attack, where the information of more than 8,000 clients was under threat. And last year, an IT error leaked both personal information and images stored in the database of the Cosmetic Institute, a cosmetic surgery clinic in Bondi, Sydney, making particular photos public that were taken of clients pre- and post-breast augmentation. These few examples, both local and global, are part of a growing pool of breaches that in February prompted the federal government to swear in new legislation known as the Notifiable Data Breaches Scheme, making it mandatory for any health service provider, the GP and beyond, to report when they've experienced a breach. However, to many, what constitutes a breach remains unclear, as does the idea that a data breach goes beyond a malicious attempt to access personal records. On this episode, you'll hear what makes health data so vulnerable. And in the midst of the opt-out period for the My Health Record, are people more data insecure than ever before?
So notifiable data breaches are really an international trend. Um, Australia is not the first, it's not the last to implement something like this. This is David Carter, a law lecturer from the University of Technology, Sydney. David explains that although the scheme is applicable to pretty much every sector... It applies to all sectors that are subject to Commonwealth privacy law. The gist of that really means that almost every interaction you have, at least in Australia, will be with an organisation that collects data, and most of those organisations are covered by this in some way, shape or form. David says it's healthcare that the scheme is really targeting. Healthcare is a big user of data, it's a big collector of data, and most importantly, it collects really sensitive data. If you think back to all the interactions you've had with health service providers, trips to the GP, hospital visits, specialist appointments, in that online pool of information, it's more than likely there are some parts you'd rather keep private. David argues the scheme, a reform to the Privacy Act of 1988, is an effort to keep to the times in terms of what we do in the case of or to prevent a data breach, but also to affirm that health data today is particularly sensitive, not only because it's personal information that we'd rather keep behind closed doors, but because in being so sensitive, it's also vulnerable. There are a number of features of healthcare that make it vulnerable to data breaches. Robert Merkel is a lecturer in software engineering from Monash University. And Robert says, aside from the fact we collect an exorbitant amount of health data... And therefore you would expect a fairly large number of data breaches in something that makes up such a big part of human activity. It's really only been in the past decade or so that one type of vulnerability has become apparent. And this is the part that I don't think a lot of the health profession quite realise yet, is that some of that information is valuable to cyber criminals because it can be misused for commercial gain. In the first quarter following the scheme being rolled out by the Office of the Australian Information Commissioner, the overseers of the scheme, it was found that out of 63 notifications, nearly half of them were because of a malicious or criminal attack. And out of this 63, a quarter were from health service providers. Robert says the type of malicious attack can vary, but one of the most common is a ransomware attack. So a typical ransomware attack would be some software is somehow installed on a computer that scrambles the hard drive, the technical term is encryption, and to get the key to unlock that data, you generally have to pay the cybercriminal ransom. But Robert notes something interesting with these attacks, and that's, for the most part, Encrypting a general practice's patient information, for example, doesn't necessarily involve leaking or off-selling that data, but rather, as the word ransom suggests, holding it hostage until some form of payment is made. The value not necessarily being in the data or the patient information itself, but rather there's the value in strickening the practice from being able to access that. Yes. And the majority of cyber criminals, they are mostly motivated by money. 
it's a business to them. They are trying to make money and they might not be all that morally choosy about how they choose to make that money. They're motivated by greed, not malice, if you like. That's not to say, however, that holding sensitive information to a ransom doesn't cause any damage. The data breach at Family Planning New South Wales was in fact a ransomware attack, where on Anzac Day, hackers demanded a $15,000 Bitcoin ransom after threatening the security of client information, including that of contraceptive and abortion records. Here, though, the ransom was never followed through, and after the threatening interaction, the money wasn't paid, and the hackers soon disappeared. However, this did leave many members of the public feeling exposed. These cyber attacks tend to get all the attention when it comes to these data breaches. But there is another vulnerability when it comes to health data that's potentially even harder to account for. And that's human error. 51% of the 63 data breach notifications in the quarterly report were due to a mistake made by a human. And contrary to the blockbuster ransomware or hacking scandals that make the headlines, many of these errors are actually tiny missteps or are due to poor practice. They might have faxed something to the wrong number. David Carter from UTS. They might have emailed something to the wrong address. They might have left something where someone else could read it, and those things happen. You can become aware of that when someone then writes back and says, this is not for us. Although these might sound like little screw-ups that could easily be fixed, they do have the potential to cause even more damage than an ominous cyber attack. Look, there's some pretty stellar examples of data breaches. Uh, one that comes to memory was uh, last year, an organisation that had outsourced the typing up of their letters, for example, from a hospital. And that organisation had obviously subcontracted someone to do it. And then a member of the public discovered many, many hundreds or if not thousands of these letters dumped in a bin uh, outside an apartment block in Sydney, you know, with everyone's name, address and all their kind of private healthcare information on it. One of the main principles behind the scheme is to ensure that no serious harm come to the individual who is affected by the breach. How do we gauge what constitutes as serious harm? How can we wrap our heads around that? It's um, a three-stage test. This is Natalie Mason, a senior associate with DWF Law. And basically the first stage is unauthorised access or unauthorised disclosure or loss of personal information, which a reasonable person would conclude there is a likely risk of serious harm to the affected individual. Natalie points out that serious harm is case-dependent, as each person would have their own definition of what constitutes serious harm. But with experience as a midwife from a previous career, Natalie says it's always best to err on the side of caution. Some hospitals one that I visited recently, they've actually got a large screen on the wall with the patient's name, the patient's number and what date that patient was in hospital. Even the very fact that that patient is in hospital, if it could be found to cause that individual serious harm, then that would fall into the type of data breach which would need notifying. Midwifery-wise, it's very interesting because you may have a couple who have separated and that partner's gone on to have another baby 
And say if the two people end up in the hospital at the same time and they see the name of their partner on a board, you know, that may be how they find out that their previous partner has had another baby just from seeing that their name on the board in a maternity unit. Natalie says this is where the legislation comes in because you have to do an assessment as to whether the person in that situation would consider that to cause them serious harm, where in the unique situation of someone merely seeing their previous partner's name on a board in a delivery unit could actually induce this. For example, if they don't want their previous partner to know about the child, or even that they're still living in the area. There are times when a breach can be remediated, meaning it doesn't need to be notified. An example would be if somebody inadvertently published something on a website and it was personal sensitive information, like your name, your date of birth, your Medicare number, you think instantly, gosh, that must be a notifiable data breach. But if you can get an IT person in that can establish that no one's actually accessed that information, you've been able to remove it within 20 minutes before anyone's seen that information, then it falls outside of a notifiable data breach. However, if it can't be remediated, the notification process begins. Here's General Practitioner Peter Walker. The new element of the notification standard is that we now have to notify not only the patients and I think medical practices have long understood that if you have a data breach then you're obliged professionally and ethically to let your patients know that their information was hacked or or lost. Where under previous law this reporting was voluntary. Now there's this mandatory reporting requirement they will also have to notify the Office of the Australian Information Commissioner who then can also check to see if anybody else has been exposed to this hacking. However, if a practice, a hospital, any health service provider, which does include places like gyms and childcare centres. I'm not sure whether they're aware of the legislation or who is informing gymnasiums, but yes, of course, they ask you quite a lot of information about your health. And so, yes, the scheme applies to them as well. If any of these providers fail to notify the information commissioner when there's been a breach, there are some pretty severe penalties. They can be really serious. David Carter from UTS Law. For an individual, it can be, you know, a number of hundred thousand dollars. For a corporation, you know, over a million. Why why pay over a million dollars for a breach? I can understand that, you know, there is confidential information here in the mix, but ultimately to charge potentially a practice over a million dollars for something that in some cases, maybe not all, has been out of their control... Like, why Why charge that? Look, I mean, they won't necessarily ever charge that. That's the highest penalty. But, of course, those penalties sit there for a reason. It's to get people to wake up and pay attention. I mean, you know, we have lots of penalties in criminal law, for example, where you might, you know, be charged all types of money in terms of a fine. Might not happen all the time, but it's there and it focuses the mind. That's why they're there. We need to have some teeth so that if someone does something really egregious, the regulator can come and perhaps take up that option. So do you think costs like that are warranted, even, you know, charging over a million dollars for a breach that was perhaps at, like, you know, a local general practice of which has perhaps not a significant turnaround? So that could sideswipe 
them and take a massive amount of the money invested into that practice out. It could. Look, again, I I would be very surprised to see a fine of a million dollars. It can be much less than that. But the implications are really serious. There's some recent research in the US that showed that the essentially the rate of death from a particular cardiac condition in hospitals where there had been a breach in the past increases. So a breach and then all of a sudden people start dying more frequently, right? So this is very fresh research. It's in the US. You know, there needs to be lots more information and lots more research done after this. But it's a relatively reasonably, I think, clear indication that we have lots of people's feelings involved about embarrassment. We have lots of people's real concerns about really material implications in terms of people knowing their private business. But there's also health implications too. People will turn away from their doctor. People in the US clearly are, you know, dying at a greater rate after a notifiable breach. These are really serious questions that we're only just starting to ask. When it comes to the penalties, GP Peter Walker is on the same page. They're severe, but also send a clear message of what can happen if a breach goes unreported. And to Peter, if anything, he'd be more concerned about penalties aside from those enforced in the scheme. The penalties are more than just what the Privacy Commissioner can impose. Obviously, if you, in the course of your lax application of, of the law, you lose control of patient data and some harm befalls them, then patients, of course, are quite free to sue you through a civil legal process and you could wind up maybe paying a lot more than what the Privacy Commissioner could levy against you. And also, you know, doctors particularly, we're, we're also under the regulatory environment of the, the Health Practitioner Acts, and therefore we could also be prosecuted by our peers for failing to maintain professional standards. So there's there's more than just the financial element. I mean, I think it is a key attribute of being a good doctor is to look after your patient's privacy. And, you know, I think, you know, from my point of view, you know, that ethical and professional standard is maybe more motivating than the risk of maybe being levied, uh, you know, a couple of million dollars in the worst case scenarios for a serious data breach. Good data practice looks different across the health landscape. Basic stuff like monitoring bank accounts. Robert Merkel from Monash University says not leaving your computer username and password on a sticky note on your desktop might sound like redundant advice, but could actually be applicable to some practices. Changing passwords on online accounts. GP Peter says security is only as strong as the health practitioner's efforts to keep systems secure, which include things like establishing an in-situ dialogue among workers as to why safe data practice is important, but also things like putting together policy documents about how information is collected and used in practice and what the protocol is in the case of a breach or near-miss. And being quick enough to realise when you might need help from outside the practice. The old days, a lot of doctors considered themselves a bit of the IT expert and they liked to be the one who put together the system and installed all the software and put in place the firewalls and whatever. I think those days are long gone and the idea that doctors can wear two hats and be the IT expert should be sort of abolished. 
Peter notes there are plenty of sophisticated and trustworthy IT providing services that can come in, set up these safeguards, and save the practitioners the time and hassle. It's safe to say, however, that breaches will occur as long as humans make mistakes. But with a legal framework that's prompting people to consider what can or should be done to prevent a breach, perhaps the rate of breaches won't come to a complete halt, but could slow over time. Or maybe not. Five months after the notifiable data breaches scheme came into effect, the opt-out period for the My Health record began. The record is an online summary of your health information, bringing together your entire medical history into one place, being accessible only to those you choose to share it with. But in a digital climate where data breaches are anticipated, if not expected, will people opt out in an attempt to keep their records secure? That's next. We're in the age of the My Health record. Mm. We're also approaching the period in which people over the course of the next three months can choose to either opt in or they can opt out. Do you think that this climate is making people more more wary of something like the My Health record? I think so. I think so. David Carter from UTS Law. The My Health record is something that's been around for a little while in Australia. It's a pretty new idea still, even though it's been around. But I think people are concerned that there will be a kind of unified record of a range of things about our healthcare treatment, our financial arrangements uh, with Medicare, for example, as well, that could be breached. Is the My Health record or might the My Health record be subject to these same sort of data breaches or ransomware attacks? I don't think ransomware is quite such a concern specifically for My Health record data. Robert Merkel, software engineer from Monash University. Like, it's entirely possible that the broader range of data held by an individual practice might be ransomware. You know, the core My Health record stored by the Australian Digital Health Agency and, and whoever they've contracted to provide the IT infrastructure, that's all highly likely to be extensively backed up and well protected against ransomware specifically. So that's not so much of a concern as far as I can tell with that. But the problem is not so much the loss of access to that, it's that data might be taken out of the My Healthcare system when it shouldn't be. What does that mean exactly? Taken well, out and in, then in the sense of the My Health record contains information about all the medical treatment that you might receive from all the healthcare providers you see within the Australian health system. So if you as a medical practice allow your credentials to be misused to download something about a person that they wouldn't want shared, that's a problem. What Robert is getting at is when information in your My Health record could be taken out and passed on without your permission. In early July, it was revealed that Health Engine the largest online doctor booking service in the country, which is also one of the partner apps of the My Health Record, had been sending patient data to third parties. And even though they were accessible in a view-only capacity, this doesn't have Robert completely convinced that there are no security concerns when it comes to the record. Right now, I think I've probably got 
a 50% chance of considering whether to opt out or opt in. Natalie Mason from DWF Law. I think for the vulnerable people in society, having that information accessible is beneficial to them. There was actually a recent coroner's inquiry in relation to where a mentally unwell person was admitted to a hospital and then she was discharged and a few days later she went to another hospital and because the hospital were unaware of her previous admission and the, the extent of her mental health, then again she was released and um, she took her own life. So in situations like that, the opting into a my house situation where you've got somebody that's vulnerable or has got a susceptibility to self-harm or any um, mental health illnesses, it can be very valuable. But I suppose because of the hackers out there and your information falling into uh, criminal hands, that would be my concern. It's a good point to kind of, you know, raise both sides of the argument there. I guess another thing as well as, you know, with anybody, myself included, it's difficult to have any sort of foresight as to whether or not the My Health record might benefit you should you find yourself in a similar situation in the future. That's correct, because at any one moment, any one of us could get hit down or lose our own mental capacity. And then if you lose capacity before you've managed to opt in, say, for example, you opt out, then it opens up all kinds of problems because you've got to get somebody who will act on your behalf to put you back into that system. So whilst you think at one moment in time, oh, it won't affect me, you just don't know down the track, it might be beneficial to you too. In contemplating whether you should opt in or opt out of the My Health record, your first train of thought might be to ask your general practitioner. But it seems that most GPs are also unsure. At GPs Down Under, a conference bringing together general practitioners from across the country, a poll was put to a group of GPs at one of the conference sessions. The question being, if you don't have your My Health record yet, are you going to opt out? 63% of the attendees said yes. I was eager to hear GP Peter Walker's thoughts on this. I think yeah, the My Health record is another can of worms as far as you know the complexities and, and even the legislative regime that is in place. For example, there's not only the data breach notification laws, but there's also a separate agency involved. If there's been a breach of the My Health record, that has to be notified to a completely different agency. A lot of patients have certainly asked me, you know, what are the risks to me if if I don't opt out? That does, I think, cause a lot of uncertainty in the mind of patients as well as in the mind of a lot of doctors. Obviously, it is so new and there are no cases yet that have unfolded. So, you know, we've been guided by lawyers reading the laws and trying to work out what might be a bad scenario that could unfold under this and how would that unfold through the law and what can we do to try and avoid those bad outcomes. And keep calm and carry on. (laughs) Keep calm and keep seeing the patients. (laughs)
This show is made possible with the support of 2SER Radio, the University of Technology Sydney, and is heard around Australia via the Community Radio Network. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Just search for Think Health. I'm Jake Morecambe.